John chapter 12. So turn to John chapter 12, starting in verse 12, as we look at what is often referred to as the triumphal entry of Christ. But really, in a sense, it is his death march, isn't it? He is now in town and headed to the cross. John chapter 12, verse 12 through 19 reads this way. On the next day, a large crowd who had come to the feast, when they had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. And they began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Well, now Jesus is embracing this king role. You remember back in John chapter 16 that he was trying to be pushed into that role. They were wanting him to take that kingly position and crush Rome, bring in his kingdom, and let them rule and reign with them. But Jesus would not do it. It was not his hour. It was not his time. Jesus knew what awaited him was death and resurrection first. But as he comes into town, all this is being orchestrated by God. They are quoting these crowds. Notice in 12 and 13, particularly 13, they're quoting Psalms 118. They're quoting verse 25 and 26. This is an anticipation of the Messiah. The Jews knew and believed wholeheartedly in the coming of the Messiah. And this was the real one. But he was coming as a savior before he was coming as a king. And this is where so many of them stumbled and so many still today stumble. But notice he is hailed as the long-awaited one. Now this was an absolute nightmare for the Pharisees, right? This is the last thing they wanted. They had been planning his death. On his way to Jerusalem, two blind men were sitting along the road and they hailed the Lord Jesus Christ as the son of David. A term used for the messianic coming of Christ. And the question is, will Jesus embrace this acclamation? Will he embrace this kingship? Look at verses 14 through 16. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as is written, Fear not, daughters of Zion. Behold, your king is coming. Seated on the donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at first. Now here's what I'm after. But when Jesus was glorified, we're going to tie that in to 1 Corinthians, then they remembered these things and were written of him and that they had done these things to him. Well, here we find our Lord not walking away from the praise of his kingly position. He's recognizing it. He's allowing it to take place. He is the king of Israel. And he is choosing to fulfill that prophecy long ago given in Zechariah that, that he is speaking of here. Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughters of Zion. Shout triumphantly, O daughters of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming. He is just. He is endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. There he is. He is fulfilling one of the great messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. And so he is saying with his action, I am the king of Israel, I am the Messiah, and he is doing it at the most dangerous moment. Hatred is building. Plans are being uh, worked out so that they can put him to death. Notice in chapter 11, verse 53, just up from there, so that from that day on, they, that's the, the religious elite, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sanhedrin, Plan together to kill him. 
That's what their plan was, to kill him. And yet Jesus is doing all of this. Now, notice how John weaves this story together to make plain that the kingship of Jesus was more than just something local. He is talking about a worldwide kingship here. Look with me at verse 17 and through 19. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. For this reason also the people went and met him because they had heard he had performed this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, I love the saying here, you see that you are not doing any good. That you can just, they're, they're mad at each other, right? The world has gone after him. That's a statement of the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ. The world has gone after the Lord Jesus Christ. And though there is a huge emotional charged crowd that's following Jesus in the wake of Lazarus uh, rising from the dead, the goal is that the world is going to come after him. He has to die. There's no way the world can get to him. There's no way the world can have eternity. He has to die. And he has his heart and mind set on that cross. And he is making his way to them. Very interesting. In chapter 11, just if you flip back to verse 48, they're very upset. They're conspiring to kill Jesus. One of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, remember he'll have, he'll have Jesus in his own home. Uh, and there... Uh, persecuting Jesus just in a little bit from this during the middle of this week, later in this week. Caiaphas, the high priest of the year, said, you do not know what you're doing at all. They're, they're, they're frustrated. But he makes some profound statements here that he doesn't understand. Nor do you take into account that this expedient uh, for you and that one man must die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. What a statement. Now he did not say this on his own initiative, but being the high priest this year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not only, and here's the verse I'm after, not only for the nation, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. This is the goal of the Lord Jesus Christ, to gather in the entire people of God, and he is doing that. To further, to further understand that, look at verse 20, back in our text, 12, 20 through 26. All of a sudden, now, to see that this prophecy was true, that the whole world starts going after him, look at verse 20. Now there were some Greeks. Oh, wasn't this a Jewish thing? The Greeks have showed up, right? Among those who were going, out to wor going up to worship the feast. And they came to Philip, who was up a state of Galilee, and began asking him, Sir, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip came and told Andrew and Alan, and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered and said to them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This is it. It wasn't in John 6. It wasn't any other time. This is it. This is where I'm going to be glorified. When they, and maybe they're thinking, well, right now he's going to take his kingship. His glory is tied to his death burial, and resurrection. That's where his glory is tied to, and he's trying to communicate to deaf ears in this. Verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. That's what Jesus is going to do, and I'm looking at his harvest right in front of me. Isn't that beautiful? 
He died so that we would be the first fruits of his resurrection, his death, burial, and resurrection. This was his goal from the beginning. Notice verse 25. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it into a life of eternity. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servants will also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So a complete different approach to the kingdom of God. It's coming through death. It's coming through burial. It's coming through resurrection and the exaltation and glorification of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the whole world, these, these Pharisees were right. Look, the whole world is going after him. Really? Oh, yeah. And that's what's happened here at this Jewish festival that was, was goals were, were the coming of the Passover and the bringing in of the harvest. Here is the Lord Jesus Christ who explains he is the fruit of the harvest. But let's not forget that there was joy and praise here. I, I love this triumphal entry. They were oblivious to what was going to happen. Even his disciples did not understand what was going to happen in the next few days. There's tremendous joy there. And yet, here is our Lord who has joy in the fact that he knows in just a matter of days, he's going to hang on a cross, be put in a cold grave, and raise again. Do you remember the joy set before him? Remember despising the shame? We've been talking about that the last few weeks. He was ready to do this. And the God gave him great joy in this day, showed great joy towards this kingly interest, uh, entrance that was fit for royalty here. But his goal is death and resurrection. That's the goal. The Passover interest was the selection of the Passover lamb. It would have been on the same day, the day they selected the lamb that they were going to sacrifice for their family, the day they would keep, keep that lamb and bring it into their home for several days and there tend it and care for it. This was all the fulfillment of the Old Testament. This is Exodus chapter 12 where they selected the lamb and painted its blood on the doorpost and the death angel passed over them. This is the final lamb and this joyful Hebrew family that would have been in town, they would have been selecting their lamb at the same time. But in amongst them, unknowing to them, was the final lamb. <laughs> ah, the last lamb, the last blood. He was right in their presence, and they were worshiping him and joyfully celebrating him. And yet they did not understand that he'd come to die. John the Baptist knew it. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist knew that he was come to die. He was come to be greater than anything in his ministry. But this lamb would rise again. We love that about this time, uh, this season of, of, the, of the advent of the resurrection of Christ. This lamb will rise again. He'll prove our sins are forgiven. And that is the central theme of the gospel. We can't just stop at the death. His resurrection is the key to all we have. And so that's where 1 Corinthians 15 comes in. And as you make your way over there, I want you to remind you that there's been a theme here. They have... They have blundered what public worship looks like. They have made a mockery of, of the church's true worship of the Lord Jesus Christ and how it has been done. And so here Paul is now taking them back to 1 Corinthians. He wants to use the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ as, a, as a, the main emphasis for worship. And though they had lost their way in chapter 12 through 14... 
his goal is crystal clear. He wants to describe what the gospel looks like. He wants to people to see the result of the gospel and that not only Christ is resurrected bodily from the dead, so are all believers. And this is what he is after. Now, doubtlessly, there was false teachers who had sought to convince uh, the Corinth church that there, there was no bodily resurrection that was moving through the church. And it was an attack. It was an attack on the gospel. And so when you get to chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, Paul is going to set that straight. And he's going to prove that the power of the gospel, the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, takes death and makes new life. That's what he does. And he's going to illustrate it in his own self. Jesus Christ is going to die like that, that grain that went into the ground and then died and then bore much fruit. Now, all believers throughout history will be given glorified bodies. And I love some of the examples. Um, when the disciples, the inner circle, the leaders among leaders, Peter, James, and John are with Christ in Matthew 18, and they're on the Mount of Transfiguration, there Elijah and Moses show up. Uh, they're not a bunch of sparklies just floating around, and somehow they have a name tag hanging on them. They recognize them. They know who they are. That's Elijah and Moses and Lord, let us build, let us build booths, let us worship. They're motivated by that. You, gotta, you have to understand there's all kinds of those who were against the resurrection in the first century. The Sadducees had taught for centuries that was, there was no resurrection. The Gnostic Greece, uh, Greeks were on the rise and they teach that, that spirit is good but matter and flesh and body is bad. So after death, there's no material body. You'll just float around in the spirit world. That's basically what they taught. There's really nothing to the resurrection except the sparklies, right? Then you come along with the mystic world that was growing in the east. And they taught that somehow you would return to somebody else's body. And you try to get things right until you got it right and eventually make your way free of this world, but not in a physical body. And so Paul is set to prove that the gospel is clear it, and clearly teaches what eternal life looks like. That's what this chapter is about. It's life physically with our resurrected Savior. And the Corinth church needed to realize that those who are in Christ will live forever and not in some disembodied spirit that was being taught. So Paul was going to set this record straight. There's a glorious resurrection. We have glorious bodies like our Lord. Jesus himself said in John 14, 19, after a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live and you will live also. That's a statement from our Lord. You're going to live. And then Paul picks up on this in one of my favorite texts to teach me and remind me what life after this life here on earth looks like is found in Philippians 3, 20 through 21. Listen to this. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior. Right? Do you wait for the Savior or are you just kind of, wow, I just can't wait to get rid of this world? No, no. Citizens of heaven eagerly wait for Jesus. They got to get that right because a lot of people just want to get rid of this world, the pain and suffering, it's all here. If that's where you're at, that you're missing what heaven's about. Citizens of heaven eagerly wait for Jesus, for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen to what he's going to do. Who will transform the body of our humble estate 
in conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Isn't that amazing? So our dear sister Jo, who just passed away a little over a week ago, she is given a body. And all of us will be given bodies, resurrected bodies, to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Christ's resurrection is a guarantee of our resurrection. I'm going to say that over and over throughout the rest of 1 Corinthians. You have to understand that. God raised him, he'll raise his children. He promises. And he'll give us a body and we will be the first fruits of the resurrection. It's clear his body was physical when we even look at Jesus, because he's the model, right? So we're going to be like him. When we see him, we'll be like him. First John chapter 3, verse 2. So he had a physical body. And, and he employs Thomas, remember? Thomas, stick your finger in my hand. Thrust, thrust your hand, is the Greek word, into my side. He's there. They see him. They touch him. He's asked for something to eat. I particularly like that after the resurrection. I'm looking forward to the feast of the marriage of the Lamb, right? He asked for something to eat. And, 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 and as we see, and we'll see just in a few moments, he's witnessed by so many. They physically walk and talk with the Lord Jesus. So our glorified Lord speaks and he ministers and he socializes with the believers here on earth. And so the Apostle Paul in order to return this wayward church. Remember, this, this church has lost its way. His goal is to bring them back to worship, and he's going to use the doctrine of the resurrection to do it. That's why this chapter is so glorious, and I've been trying to time it to hit this Easter week, and I'm so glad the Lord has helped me do that. And so here as we look in the Corinth church, this letter to Corinth, you're going to get a glorious glimpse of the future as we go through this. You're going to see how glorious our Lord is and what life he has for us. And so we should care deeply about these things. So this morning, I'm going to try my hardest. We'll end when we have to, and I'll pick up next week. But we're going to look at four evidences of the resurrection. Now, the first evidence of the resurrection is saving faith. Look at verses 1 and 2 that Aaron read for us today. Now, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand by which you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, I love this first statement. Now I make known to you, brethren. It's an emphatic declaration. Everything about the Greek structure is emphatic, right? Paul is coming out. He's just finished his 12 through 14 and trying to deal with their very foreign, pagan-influenced worship. And he says, I'm going to declare to you now what has been made known. I'm going to make this known to you. He's calling us and he's calling the attention of the church in the first century to full attention. And what's he calling it to? Notice he's calling it to the gospel, isn't he? I make known to you, brethren, the gospel. That's what he makes known. He doesn't make known his great ministry and all the things that's happened. He doesn't make known to whatever everybody else thinks. He wants to bring them to the gospel. Isn't that our job? You can have a lot of empty conversations. There's one that isn't empty. It's the gospel. And when you have gospel conversations, it is the good news. That's the word here. Ulangelion is the, the Greek word. And, and the structure is amazing here, which I preach to you. And literally, the Greek says this. I, I gospelize you, in a sense, is the idea of the tense there. When I ulangelioned you. I gospeled you when I gave you and, and, and personally gave you and delivered to you the gospel. 
my goal was to gospelize you, have you completely convinced in the work, the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I think Paul is saying this. And when he came, he preached the gospel to them. They received the gospel. They stood in the gospel. And they are saved by the gospel. Notice that throughout that. This is, this is what they received. Chapter 1, just flip back real quickly. Verse 18. Chapter 1, verse 18. The word of the cross is foolish to those who are perishing. Right? Where's the rest of the forty or 50,000 people of Ormond Beach? I, I trust some of them are in some other good churches, but... Because the cross is foolish, and you say, well, they probably wouldn't say it's foolish. Well, it's not enough to give a day. See, most of the world looks at the cross as foolish, the suffering of Christ, the finished work of Jesus, but not to save. Notice, but to us, I love that. That's circled in my Bible. I'm looking right at it. To us, who are being saved, it is the power of God. And we see that term, salvation, uh, used in the past, present, and future. There's a continually aspect of God's saving grace in our life. If you drop down to verse 22, for indeed the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks search for wisdom. Notice that both of those groups are not looking for the gospel. Both of those groups, and they, those, those terms filter into all kinds of religious things within our society today. They're looking for signs and they're looking for wisdom. They're not looking for the gospel. That's, the way, that's what sets us apart, right? And praise God that he has done this, verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified. And because they're not looking for the gospel, it's a stumbling block to the Jews and it's foolishness to the Gentiles. You see that? That's what happens. Chapter 2, when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superior speech, verse 1, or wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimonies of God. And I, this is, if you've ever been in my office, this is on my office, this is my life verse. For I have determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. There was nothing else that he wanted. He wanted Christ proclaimed, even in his weakness, And notice in verse 5, so your faith won't rest on the works of men. And if you think you got yourself to God on your own, you're resting your faith on yourself. See, true conversion is that we rest our faith on Christ alone. Lord, I got nothing but an empty hand. I got nothing. I'm drowning. I'm going to die. There's no hope for me. I put my faith, my God-given faith in you. So Paul is reminding the church as you work your way back to 1 Corinthians 15 that he was the one that God used to bring the gospel to these dead souls in Corinth and give them new life. God did that through the gospel. Notice he says the word received in that first couple of verses there, which you also received. Uh, this means that there was a, a time, there's it's an error's tense, there was a time in the past when God gave you this gift of the gospel. You've forgotten that God gifted with you. Do you not do that every once in a while? Our lives maybe reflect that. We get caught up in things we shouldn't get caught up. And when we remind ourselves, we go, you know, I, I didn't even think about the gospel today. I'm, I've got all these concerns. I've got all these worries. I've got all these fears. Here Paul says, look, I, I gave you this gospel. You received it. It was a gift to you. And God opened your heart and he granted you faith so you could receive it. And not only did you receive it, notice that they stood in it. And here he switches the tense. He goes to a perfect tense, which means there was a point in time in your history, in your life, you received this, and now you stand, and the perfect tense tells us that that's an enduring tense. It goes on forever and ever. 
And so Paul is being kind to them. He's saying, there was a time when God gave you this, a specific time you received the gospel and you became rooted and grounded in the truth and you stood on the fact that Jesus died for your sins. He was buried to prove he was dead and he was resurrected to prove he had victory over your sins and that's the foundation of the gospel. And that, he says, you've strayed from that. Notice he says, by which you were saved. Again, he switches a tense again. He goes back to a passive, excuse me, a present passive. Meaning, right now, the gospel is gifting you. And you presently and continually hold on to salvation, which is rooted in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're right now. Paul, Paul said earlier, he said, you're being saved. Or you have been saved. He uses all those tents to show that in our salvation, God embraces us and keeps us in salvation from the time of new birth all the way through eternity. Wow, what a statement. What a statement of our great God. But then he says this. Now notice this. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. Now, doubtlessly, they're unsaved among Corinth church. They sure act like it, don't they? They've taken in a lot of pagan rituals. They've had all kinds of problems. And so here we have probably some unbelievers. When we get to the end, or someday we're going to get to the end of 2 Corinthians. I might come back around to teach that. But you get to the end of 2 Corinthians, chapter 13, verse 5. He says, test yourself to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourself. Now, why does he say that? Because doubtlessly there's unsaved people in the church. And that's probably true here today. There's probably people in a crowd this big, a church this big, this many people online watching us, people who have walked some aisle, said some prayer, raised some hand, did something on their own strength, and yet genuinely are not in the faith. And so Paul says to examine this. And that's why he makes this statement. If you continue in it, if you continue in it, that's, that's a great difference between the academic head knowledge and a true worshiper. There's nothing wrong with academic head knowledge. We, we want you to grow. We have discipleship programs. We have Bible studies. We have all this stuff so you learn to love the Lord. But that should produce a true worshiper. That's the goal. And only true worshipers are resurrected for eternity. Do you know that? Only true worshipers are resurrected for eternity with Christ. All others are resurrected to judgment. Everybody's resurrected. Everybody's given a physical body. One, for the enjoyment of eternity with our God and Savior. The other, to survive judgment for all time. And we'll see that as we go down through this text. But for the true worshiper, you receive the gospel, right? The gospel that saves you. It causes you to stand in, the, in this truth, in a world of lies, right? You're flooded by a world of lies. What's going to help you get through that? Because you stand in the gospel. Oh, that gives you such strength. You cling to that. You hold to it. It means your faith isn't in vain. You know God saved you. You are convinced without a shadow of doubt because your, your, your work is not in yourself. You believe in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ and you have assurance. And so that brings us to the doctrine of perseverance. That's what he's talking about here. It tells us that you can be assured because your faith is in Christ's work, not your own. I, I've said this a million times we don't persevere to be saved. We persevere because we're saved. You see the difference? There's a lot of people out there going, well, I just, I got to go to church. And I, I got to do this. And I got to line up this. And I, I can't do that. And all that. They're trying to persevere, hoping they can get across the finish line. If that's you, brother or sister, 
That's not salvation. That's works. And I'm not saying this life is easy. I'm not saying that, that things are not difficult here. But let me say this. If you're saved, you're going to run through the tape no matter what road God chooses you to take. You will finish. It may be difficult. It may be easier. Some go home to be with the Lord at a young age and don't see all the difficulties that some of us do. God lets some of us go through some very difficult times to bring him glory through those difficult times, to change us and cause us to be like Christ more. But whatever it is, a true believer is going to finish. You may need us to hold your hand. I may need you to hold my hand when I finish. But we're going to finish, aren't we? Because God has done a finished work in our lives. And so for those in the Corinth church and many others, there was a lot of emotional charged relationship with some kind of gospel. But Christ himself told parables. Look, he said, seed falls on road and Satan snatches it away like the birds. Some seeds fall on rock and they spring up quickly, but they fade away with affliction and persecution. There's others that fall in the thorns and they're choked out because of world, worries of the world. And listen to this, deceitful desire for gain. Those things are choked out. But true faith comes to the one who believes the word of God. And God proves that believer to put his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the one who will be resurrected to eternal life with the Lord Jesus Christ. You're committed to the entire gospel. I'm committed to Jesus' death on the cross. That he died and he died in my place he became sin for me in a sense. He, he took my sin, stood in my place, substitutionary death. I believe they put his dead body in a grave to show that the wages of sin is death. And I believe the Father gave him life on the third day, and he breathed, and he came out of that grave just like he promised to show that he had beat sin, Satan, and death. That's the gospel. And this is evidence. That's, we, are, we are evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look at all of us. Whole room full of people here giving evidence because we believe the gospel. Amen? Second thought. The second evidence of the resurrection is the infallibility of the scriptures. Look at verses 3 and 4. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also receive. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Now Paul returns again to the gospel and particularly to the infallibility in the divine revelation of God's word. He goes, look, he goes, I deliver to you of first importance what I received. He's a deliverer of it. I love this, right? That's Paul's commission. He's commissioned to deliver the word of God. He's commissioned to deliver to every tribe and tongue and people, everyone that God puts in his way. He's not commissioned to deliver his own words. And neither are you. You can't make up your own Bible. <laughs> you can't make up your own interpretation of the Bible. That's why we work hard to get it right. Because we deliver what God has given. And here particularly, this is special revelation. The, the New Testament wasn't written. So God gave Paul this message, this gospel, the word of God, and he's delivered it to him. Notice he says a first importance. Protos is the word there. Great word. It means priority, force. Uh, foremost, first of all, it carries the idea of being chief of all things, right? And, and then he says, you received it. It denotes a reception of something. It's actually used of taking into custody something. We, we took in, when we read God's word or we hear it preached, we take it into the custody of our heart, don't we? And you go, that's for me. 
Right? It's so easy to think of somebody else when you're hearing a good sermon, right? Or maybe a miracle one like this one. Um, you go, oh, man, I wish so-and-so was here. <laughs> yeah, I, I get that. You're trying, you want people to get saved. But it's for you. God's word is delivered for you. Whether you're sitting with your Bible on your lap in your pickup truck at lunch break, or, or you're up early in the morning or late at night, God's word is delivered for you to know the gospel, to hear him speak to you. Paul believed this with all his heart. Look at Galatians chapter 1. Let's go to your right, a book or two. He knows what God was doing in his life. Verse 11, chapter 1. For I would have you know, here he goes again, right? He speaks so definitively. It's just no messing around. I want you to know this. He's a preacher. He, and, and let me go beyond that. He's someone who believes the gospel. If you believe the gospel, you have people in your life that you want to know this, don't you? And I love the passion of Paul, right? For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. Praise God. Because those men always fall away, don't they? And they cause all kinds of problems, right? Praise God, it's from God. For, ne- for I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Wow, Paul's getting direct revelation here. He can. That's what God was doing. Verse 13. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism. If you haven't, you're going to hear now. How I used to persecute the church beyond measure, wow, strong terms, and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions, not the law. The law of God will actually lead you to the gospel. Because it's a tutor, he's going to say that later on. He, he was extremely strong on the traditions of man. Don't do this. Don't eat that. Don't be with these people. Don't wear that. Don't go that. You know, all that. Now look what he says. But when God. Now I'm a marker of my Bible. I hope you are too. That's circled in my Bible. I'm looking right at it. Isn't that wonderful? You think you've got this religious goal in your life. You're, you're, you're a good person. You're doing all these things that you think are right. I'm holding the traditions. But then God comes along and exposes you are a wretch. You think you're something, but you're not. And notice he says, but when God, who set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, the pagans, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. This is very detailed. But I did not see any other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And then you, you know what happened in Acts chapter 9. I don't have time to go there. He's, he's on the way. He's, he's headed to go destroy homes and break up churches and, and, and put people to death possibly if need be in Acts chapter 9. And the Lord meets him there. Knocks him off his steed. And there exposes himself to Paul and says, why are you persecuting me? What a great statement. You hurt my church. You hurt me. Good reminder, isn't it? Take care of the church. Be careful. 
Because when you hurt the church, you hurt Christ. He's very clear on that. And there he takes him in and he teaches him through this man who was afraid of him. He says, Ananias said, this man's done great harm to the way. And he says, oh, no, no, no. Listen, I've saved Paul. And he's going to suffer great for my name's sake. You take care of him. There his sight was gained and he was back. And so Paul looks back. And what he's doing here in in our passage, as you turn back to 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is now reflecting back on the sovereignty of God who knew him from the foundations of the world, who knew him in his mother's womb, and then sought him out and drew him to himself on that Damascus road there. And then the Lord himself educated and trained him personally in the deserts of Arabia. What an education. Now, we can't quite give you that here at at, uh, Christ Theological Seminary and Bible College, but we're going to use his word. We're going to teach you to be a student of the word, and I invite every one of you to take classes because you're going to come away with that. But what an amazing experience he has had. And so the priorities of first importance here is his message. His message is a priority, the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ according to the scriptures. Three indispensable truths. Christ died for our sins. He was buried to prove the wages of sin. And his father resurrected him to show without a shadow of doubt he beat all of that. Now, the disciples struggled fully um, to understand this at first. Jesus knows that. He meets a couple of them on the Emmaus Road. And we're going to get through this point, and then I'll, I'll, I'll jump onto this next week. Um, and, and what a beautiful story it is. Luke chapter 24, some of the disciples have, the resurrection's already taken place. Jesus has appeared to Peter already. These men are on the, on the Mass Road. They're traveling, and Jesus shows up among them. And they start saying, well, where have you been? Do you have your head in the sand? Remember they said, you know, it's almost like, I can't believe you don't know this, because Jesus is kind of playing along, like, well, what events are happening in Jerusalem? Well, the potential Messiah came and, and, and they crucified him and, and they put him in a grave and, and then some of our own got there and it was emptied, the women and Peter. And even they, he even appeared to Peter and so Jesus says to them, verse 25, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Let me stop right there. To most of the Jews, it was not necessary. They don't need the death of a king. They just want the kingdom. That's what the world wants today. It has not changed. Just let me go to heaven, believe my little sparkly thing, and I'll be good. I'm not, again, I, I, you know, I vote a certain way. I'm not like those people or whatever. See, Jesus hits it right on the head. Was it not necessary for Christ to suffer these things? Absolutely was necessary. We all go to hell if he doesn't. He had to suffer in such ways. And then, oh, could you imagine this seminary class? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explains to them the things concerning himself and all of the scriptures. You want to talk about biblical theology? That was a great class. Oh, my goodness. And you start to see, notice Paul keeps saying, according to the scriptures, according to the scriptures in this text, right? And so Jesus here begins to teach the infallibility of the word of God. That's what Paul's talking about. He's talking about the infallibility. He's talking about inerrancy. He's talking about authority. He's talking about sufficiency of scriptures. That's what he's saying. That's what the gospel teaches. And so Jesus comes along and he says, the the Old Testament's all talking about me. 
Genesis 22, Isaac and Abraham, an altar, <laughs> knife in the air, ram caught in the thickets with thorns around its horns, substitutionary death, off comes Isaac, on comes the male unblemished ram, all through the scriptures. Passage after passage pointing forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what he's telling. Can you imagine when he got to uh, Psalms 22, that is a description of crucifixion a thousand years before it was ever used. Can you imagine when you get to Psalm 16 and he says that God promised that the Messiah's body would not see decay. Can you imagine when he got to Isaiah 53? Man, what a lesson. What a lesson. And every sacrifice and every lamb, all of this pointing to Christ. The writer of Hebrews says he's the greater prophet, the greater priest, the greater kings. A shadow of things to come, better things to come. He had to fulfill the first in order to usher in the second. All pictures of what Jesus was doing. And he gave that example on the Emmaus Road as, listen to this, as the resurrected Savior and King. Standing there with him. Ah, well, there's two evidence. I, I got to get two more next week. We're going to be, I'm going to get to those, and they're awesome because he starts to appear to people over and over. And then we're going to go down, and he's going to start to take on this silly, pagan view that you're not going to raise from the dead. And he's going to prove it because he raised Christ. You don't want to miss next week. Bring somebody. They're going to hear the gospel, okay? Father, thank you for this time. We want to enter into the Lord's table with a right heart, Lord. Now, we, we know that you died for us. And what a, what a wonderful thing that is just not death. It's resurrection. It's as John said, it's the glorification of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was resurrected, glorified. And he was exalted and placed at the right hand of the Father. And every tongue and every uh, mouth will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, whether they agree with him or not. And so, Lord, we are in this passage as well. We will be resurrected. We will be like Christ when we see him. And so, Lord, it's so important for us to realize that, yes, this life is difficult. There will be trials and tribulations, our Lord said. But there's a great end to this. Death does not have a sting. Death cannot permanently kill, kill us. God, you through your son took care of the second death, and we will reign with him. And we long for that day. And so, Lord, help us remember this as we read our Bibles this week leading up to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Cause us to be consumed with his glory, captured by his person. May this be a great week for us as Christians, followers of Jesus. In your name, amen.